Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Episode 68, The Golden Circle, A Secret Society of Secession. In today's episode, we will discuss the Knights of the Golden Circle and try to answer the following questions. First, who were the Knights? Second, why were they important? And third, what was their ultimate impact or why were they important in hindsight? Unfortunately, all of these questions are tricky to answer because the Knights of the Golden Circle were a secret organization. Just to give you a heads up, we are not going to conclude that the Knights reshaped American history on their own. They probably never had the full political following to accomplish that. But there is a serious argument that they tipped the balance in some areas towards secession and radically reshaped the Civil War. So let us proceed to the background of the organization, where it came from, and why it formed. For a simple answer, the Knights came from the mind of one George Bickley. Born in Virginia in 1823, Bickley had a deeply unhappy childhood following the death of his father and ran away at age 12. Yes, 12. He traveled around, but not entirely unconnected from his family. It seems likely that his absent and disinterested mother could have brought him home, but didn't care to exert that much effort. After ranging as far as Alabama, Bickley eventually wound up in Indiana, where he attended college before returning south to land in North Carolina. He married and had one child by his first wife, before her death. He later returned to Virginia to study and then practice medicine. Probably in part due to his rather unusual childhood, Bickley also became something of a habitual liar. To clarify, his so-called medical work lay in the field of phrenology, ostensibly the science of finding problems by reading the bumps of someone's skull. Phrenology, to be perfectly clear, is utter nonsense and always was. While there are fields of medicine that made overblown claims but did contribute at least something to the canon of human health in this era, phrenology discovered absolutely nothing. And yet this was the great age of medical nonsense. Constant ongoing advances in practical areas like steam power, but also many scientific studies, made it possible for men to dream that anything was possible. At the same time, the real medical knowledge still languished, with the foundational scientific breakthroughs of Louis Pasteur still to come. The use of general anesthetic had just been developed and practiced for the first time only four years earlier. Therefore, even very well-educated people often grabbed new medical fads because they simply had no facts with which to reject them. George Bickley rode this wave with ease. He became a professor of a medical college in Cincinnati by the simple expedient of lying about his credentials. His students evidently thought very little of his teaching style, but it did lead to the growth of Bickley's prospects. He was an inveterate self-promoter and wrote several books and even a novel. He also married very well in 1853 and therefore brought himself into the upper crust of Ohio society. That put him within reach of some very important figures, including Senator Crittenden of Kentucky, but more significantly for our story, leaders of the Young America movement. That was something of the literary side of Jacksonian populism and later manifest destiny. It was brash, but also focused enthusiastically on progress, expansive in every sense for better or for worse. Significantly, Bickley retained those connections when he, uh, tried to defraud his wife and sell the family home from under her. She threw him out. In the meantime, 
George Bickley was already on the road to form the Knights of the Golden Circle, though not directly. He had created a local society in Ohio and then joined another secretive political organization, the Know Nothings. We've dealt with them before, and it seems the idea of secret societies influencing politics greatly appealed to Bickley's inveterate streak of deception. He claimed to have founded his Knights of the Golden Circle with five members in 1854. This is a fairly plausible beginning, but again, there's no real documentation of it now. In addition, Bickley must have been very busy indeed if he managed to juggle all of these memberships simultaneously. In the 1850s, Bickley went to work at a magazine called The Scientific Artisan, where he deeply unimpressed his co-workers, but also finished up his design for his own secret society. He quit and began to travel once more, this time across the South, where he began to set up new organizations for the Knights of the Golden Circle. He probably had some success there, It appears that he got in touch with various pro-slavery or southern rights groups that had organized locally in the 1850s as the struggle for slavery heated up. But exactly how much success he had remains unclear to this day. The Knights were a secret society, more or less, and we cannot trust Bickley's accounts of his accomplishments. However, we do know that he encountered some very real success in the form of merging an existing secret society, the Order of the Lone Star, into his Knights of the Golden Circle. Supposedly, this happened in 1856, but again, there's some real questions about the timing of all this, and it might have occurred later. In any case, the importance is that Bickley did merge his organization with the Order of the Lone Star, and this mattered. The OTS was a pretty significant movement. Originally founded by Cuban exiles and upper-class Southerners with a head for glory, the movement promoted filibustering. We haven't entirely explored the filibusters with a full episode yet, but this was a decade when adventurers scrambled all over the Caribbean and Central America. Many of the governments there were newly established. They only had shallow institutional roots and little popular support. Ambitious and fiery young men sought their fortunes by conquest, subversion, a little thievery, and promoted the whole of it in the blazing ideals of liberalism. In the end, all the filibusters more or less failed. But for the entire 1850s, many Southerners wanted to go off and fight somewhere pleasantly tropical and hopefully make a fortune in the process. And the Order of the Lone Star was right there. They counted Mississippi Governor Quitman and Louisiana Senator Pierre Soule among their ranks. It was a big deal, with chapters ranging from Alabama to Texas. Bickley's new Knights of the Golden Circle absorbed all this strength, with its connections to the highest ranks of the Democratic Party within the South. It also absorbed the Order of the Lone Star's political ambitions at the time when filibustering began to wane. And this actually brings us to the name of the organization and why that's important. So you see, the Golden Circle wasn't just a catchy title. It specifically referred to geography, the circle of land forming the Caribbean more or less. From Texas to Mexico, Central America, across the northern shores of South America, up the islands of the Antilles and then to Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, and Cuba before finally landing in Florida. The Knights aspired, at least in theory, to somehow incorporate all this territory into the aegis of the United States. Not coincidentally, some of this land held slaves at the time, or at least the potential for future plantations. Although the age of filibustering had slowly closed, the kind of man interested in the Order of the Lone Star and later the Knights of the Golden Circle was also very likely pro-slavery and pro-secession. There had been a link between these pro-slavery agitation and filibustering before, yet they had not 
previously been identical. Some among the filibusters thought about acquiring more slave states to prop up the power of slavery within the United States, but most just wanted an outlet for their ambitions, or turned to slavery to shore up support after an expedition. In any case, Bickley's antics did not stop simply because he now ostensibly headed an increasingly large secret society with a militant bent, with contacts at the highest echelons of the Democratic Party politics. On the contrary, he launched quixotic schemes to invade northern Mexico and carve out some territory, although the exact purpose varied with the telling. Would-be filibusters varyingly proposed to conquer all of Mexico, to adding some land to Texas, to conquering their own independent republic, to creating a new state for the Union. Yet these dreams had grown increasingly improbable. The year of 1859, when these schemes began to gather momentum, was not 1849. Mexico, though still riven by its own internal strife, was not nearly as unstable as it had been. More to the point, the Buchanan administration, like the Pierce administration before it, formally rejected filibustering. Though both Buchanan and Pierce leaned south, really south, and had very little spine to speak of, they could hardly call themselves national leaders while allowing private armies to run around invading neighboring countries in direct violation of the law. Previous filibusters spat in the eye of the nation's judicial integrity, and had gotten away with it due to their strong local popularity, and this deeply embarrassed Washington. More to the point, it could very easily lead to unpopular and costly wars that might easily fracture the increasingly weak Democratic Party. One quirk in all of this is that, during 1859 and 1860, the Knights, which had never been quite as secret as they claimed, more or less left the pretense altogether. Reporters regularly noted their activities, and they openly promoted the idea of invading Mexico, or whatever. Ostensibly credible reports filtered in from across the South during the spring of 1860 of Knights of the Golden Circle drilling regiments to invade Mexico. That said, while we do get a much clearer idea of their activities, we don't know the identity or numbers of many of the individual Knights. The invasion has a curious history itself. President Buchanan did have concerns over the unrest in Mexico, and even in principle sanctioned the idea of an invasion. Elkanah Greer, the leader of the Knights of the Golden Circle in Texas, enthusiastically embraced the notion and assumed that Buchanan's hypothetical gave some political cover. Although Greer's full intentions are not entirely clear, it looks as though he wanted to carry out an invasion of Mexico, but at the same time he was challenging Bickley for control over the national organization. The governor of Texas, Sam Houston, condoned the idea. He sought assistance from Washington by dispatching a knight of the name Ben McCulloch. Now, Ben McCulloch we've encountered. Uh, he will go on to become a Confederate general, but not until after he betrays Houston in turn. Some claimed that Sam Houston was a knight, but it doesn't appear that he actually joined either the Order of the Lone Star or the Knights of the Golden Circle, and in fact, he seems to have set himself directly against them later on. The Knights were quick to promise thousands or even tens of thousands of recruits, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Despite claims of men drilling in eagerness across the nation, when the senior Knights actually met, they discovered no money and virtually no troops. This would put pressure on Bickley, but not until after the Buchanan administration put a stop to the whole affair. The reality is that following the Mexican-American War and the resulting agitation over slavery, the federal government had no appetite for more territory. It already had far more than it could deal with in the foreseeable future, and the Senate was in no mood for expansion. 
the rising Republican Party also pushed back against a pointless war. Moreover, even President Buchanan had in mind something more like a peacekeeping or nation-building expedition under professionals, not an invasion of grizzled Texas Rangers bent on conquest. For a number of reasons, the United States felt that it should support the liberal faction of Benito Juarez in Mexico, at the moment fighting to stabilize the country against both warlords and European intervention. With nothing to distract them, George Bickley's enemies within the Knights tried to oust him, using the entirely accurate charge that he was little more than a fast-talking fraud who kept very dubious accounting records. The trouble was that Bickley uh, was really a fast-talking fraud. He more or less outplayed his opponents such as Greer and remained entirely in control over the Knights as a political organization. Bickley lost the military authority as the ostensible general for the Knights. However, that had always been a very vague and questionable power base, so nothing actually changed in the end. Knights continued to move into Texas through the summer, but they had nothing to do once they got there. Presumably most of them turned around and left. That said, the Knights still had a certain amount of momentum, it just wasn't going to any useful purpose. And yet, this was 1860, the last summer before secession, and the air already burned thick with fervent conspiracy. Newspapers run by or friendly to the Knights all over Texas began to run increasingly insane stories about the many plots hatched by abolitionists. This began with pointing the finger at mysterious, and entirely fictional, abolitionist infiltrators for a major fire in Dallas. But it continued with accusations of poisonings and many other things besides. Paranoid slave masters sometimes questioned their bondsmen, demanding answers, a few even to the point of torture. Uh, unsurprisingly, they got some kind of response that they wanted, because that's what made it stop. The panic spread to a lesser degree across the Lower South from there. In the wake of this, circles of the Knights began to think about using their military strength more locally. An expedition to Mexico carried out without national authority might attract far more words than deeds, but pro-slavery agitation could be carried out at home. More to the point, the Knights of the Golden Circle were not actually organized in such a way as to develop international military strength, but they were set up in such a fashion as to allow for domestic political subversion. And during the presidential election of 1860, the Knights were very much aware of this fact. George Bickley ostensibly presented his organization as politically neutral, but in the same breath suggested that the Knights would resist a Republican administration. He and the Knights openly advocated against abolitionism and in favor of slavery, which they identified with Southern identity. Bickley, in fact, publicly admitted that the Knights were engaged in vigilante activities such as spying on suspected Northerners, not that they actually found any saboteurs. And also in public, he went right to the line of advocating treason and sedition. What we don't know in reality is the size of the organization, or the actual intentions of the leadership at this point in time. Given that his history involved many years spent in slave-free Ohio, Bickley might seem like an improbable apostle of secession. Yet at the same time, he had never once let his morals get in the way of a good score before, so there's no reason to assume that he suddenly developed some kind of deep, honest, patriotic impulse. He had a wave of support and power to ride, and principles wouldn't help that. The other men leading these circles of the night, such as Greer, however, proved hardline secessionists believing, or at least claiming to believe, that Northerners were attacking them from the shadows, they could hardly resist the chance to strike back. We know that some high-level meetings occurred, 
but not the character of those meetings or exactly how far the leading knights proposed to go at this stage. Now, one additional quirk is that there were a great many prominent names thrown about as men who might be members of the knights, but it's tricky to determine now whether any reality lay behind it. A loyal Union man who joined a circle to more or less spy on them claimed that a slew of prominent Southerners, including then-Secretary of War John B. Floyd, Senator Jefferson Davis, and the contemporary Vice President Breckinridge were all knights. But we have no membership roles or other proof of this. It's also possible that these men weren't knights, but as prominent Southerners with pro-slavery sympathies, the knights used their names for more or less good marketing. As far as Vice President Breckinridge goes, though, there may have been some real fire causing the smoke. Kentucky Senator Crittenden also accused him as being a member of the Knights, and he may have worn the icon of the Knights while actually serving as Vice President. In the wake of secession, political clubs that favored him frequently went over to actively supporting the Confederacy, even in border states such as Delaware. In the wake of the election of Abraham Lincoln, prominent knights in Texas at least began to openly espouse the idea of rebellion. They had also all supported Breckinridge. Although hardly alone in this, it's also clear that they took a great deal of strength from their prominence and membership in the society. It gave them an active base of support. We should not entirely build this up too much. For example, South Carolina, where the knights were not a huge factor, would become the first state to openly secede, with Mississippi coming second. And yet Mississippi was one of the strongholds of the Knights, and as it happened, the governor of South Carolina, Francis Pickens, was brother-in-law to Elkanah Greer. In the days following secession, known members of the Knights took an early role in mobilizing militia companies in South Carolina, Georgia, and other states. Again, the effort went far beyond just the Knights. The very size of the marshalling forces obscured the role of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And yet, across the South, no knights immediately took up leading roles in organizing new militia companies, all brazenly breathing secessionist doctrines. In Virginia, a man named Virginius D. Groner seems to have been the key figure, and crucially, he identified his newly drilling militia with the knights at first, and not with the state or a nascent confederacy. This occurred even before Virginia succeeded. In fact, quite a few of the existing militia organizations were also members in good standing of the knights, including the Norfolk Greys, headed by Groner. Others included the San Antonio Guards or the Atlanta Greys. Uh, many militia companies adopted the name of Grey due to using Grey uniforms. We've also discussed the activities of John B. Floyd, Secretary of War and unconfirmed knight, before. As a reminder, Floyd tried to ship large quantities of arms to the South shortly before leaving office. It's unclear whether he might have arranged this to please the knight specifically, but evidently, they had discussed the idea of seizing federal forts, documented as early as November 1860. More immediately, the Knights played a powerful role specifically in Texas. The Order of the Lone Star, after all, had previously had many chapters in the Lone Star State, and this number had only grown since they merged with the Knights of the Golden Circle. The Knights probably had 8,000 or more members in Texas at the time of secession, and the Knights played an aggressive hand in making sure Texas joined. The Knights organized parades and processions, meetings, and public speeches to promote secession. They also took an active role in suppressing Unionist sentiments. Knights broke up Union meetings, shut down Unionist newspapers, and intimidated Union men. They confronted anyone who dared to speak out, 
and organized the Texas Committee of Public Safety, a body organized to identify and crush any Unionist in the state. The Knights even reportedly ran some of the elections for delegates to the secession convention, according to witnesses, which does rather raise some questions about the validity of that body. All told, the Texas delegates officially went overwhelmingly in favor of secession. But considering the immense pressure put upon the public and the significant Union sentiment that remained throughout the war years, there are again real questions about just how valid that result was. A quarter of Texas sent no delegates at all. For the record, 11 of the 177 Texas delegates were avowed knights, but then again, not every member did particularly avow himself. After all, it was supposed to be secret. Regardless, Texas secession gave official cover to the knights, who, more or less, would fold themselves into a new Texas state military body soon to join the wider Confederacy. With at least a couple brief diversions along the way. Governor Sam Houston tried mightily to resist secession, turning on old allies, including those within the Knights. Fundamentally, he believed in a United States, not the Confederacy, and he understood that war would be the inevitable outcome. And that was a war he doubted the Confederacy could win. Houston tried, vainly, to slow or maybe stop the march towards secession by calling for a general Southern convention at which Unionists might reassert themselves. He also warned Army General David Twiggs, lately arrived to take command in Texas of the coming trouble. Twiggs' own loyalties, however, were deeply suspect. Houston dourly endured secession, but he refused to seize federal property. So the Knights did that instead. In the early morning hours of February 16th, Ben McCulloch, as member before, a knight, assembled a regiment made up mostly of other knights and surrounded the army fort in San Antonio, including the storied Alamo. The soldiers, hardly on the lookout for trouble given that they considered themselves at home and unwilling to fire on their countrymen anyway, put up no resistance. In fact, that same day, Colonel Robert E. Lee rode back into town, only to find the American flag torn down by secessionists. They declared him a prisoner of war, but had no intention of keeping him, and Lee left in disgust. Twiggs ordered his entire command to flee Texas, more or less, then promptly got cashiered from the service by Winfield Scott for his failure. He had been badgering Scott in order to resign his commission anyhow, and he promptly signed on to the Confederacy. Later in February, the leaders of the Knights in Texas convened San Antonio and more or less divided up the state. They raised militias using the various castles of knights as a starting base, and seized as much federal property and especially armaments as they could get their hands on. In March, George Chilton, ostensibly the Grand Marshal of the Texas Knights, demanded that Sam Houston take the oath to support the Confederacy. This was arguably a curious notion, given that Texas had only weeks earlier declared itself a free and independent state once more. Houston resisted, but he could see the writing on the wall he finally left office, refusing to participate. This was essentially the great victory of the Knights, but also in a curious manner their decline. Just as the Order of the Lone Star had folded its identity into the Knights of the Golden Circle, there was now no longer a real need for the Knights to exist as a separate entity. They had, in effect, become the new ruling class, or at least a part of it. Activities by the Knights as a group went on in each Confederate state until secession, including notably Maryland, Virginia, Kentucky, and Arkansas. Of course, not all of these states did secede. Activity by the Knights was not in itself definitive. Rather, and here ultimately is the argument that we are making, it provided a structure and framework for direct action. 
The Knights formed, in essence, a network of militant subversives. While it turned out they could not mobilize to attack a neighboring country, they could organize against internal political opposition. Though hardly the only sorts of militancy in the South, the Knights were particularly strong in the Lower South. Exact numbers are, of course, rather hard to verify. George Bickley said whatever he wanted and never worried over much about the facts. But the hard truth seems to be that potentially as many as 5% of free white men in the Lower South may have been members of the Knights. However, the overall numbers don't tell the whole story, for the society attracted aggressive, ambitious, though not always well-educated men. They had some means, and in a way represent the antithesis of republicanism in this period. Both appealed to a class of men that wanted to grow or expand in some way. The Knights at first tried to retain the old expansion as a dream of territorial acquisition. But when that failed and clashed with the republican dream of free settlement over the West in the election of 1860, the Knights immediately turned their full strength towards breaking the nation. As they themselves said, we may find our Mexico in Washington, a veiled threat of seizing the capital instead of launching invasions outward. And that is the limit of the argument. The Knights did not create secessionism, and they were not the majority of secessionists. Several of the most significant figures don't appear to have ever remotely considered membership in the order, including Alexander Stevens. And yet, by providing a militant social group that could organize and carry out actual violence, the Knights may have tipped the balance in favor of secession. Probably not in South Carolina or Mississippi, but quite possibly in Texas and Arkansas. They promoted their cause, which at least has the benefit of being a democratic exercise, but they also directly acted against Unionists. They helped create the appearance of an inevitable, inexorable tide, and in politics such appearances can matter. Contemporary opponents of the Knights sometimes publicly accused them of disloyalty long before secession, and a couple exposés were published. However, even to this day, hard data on members and the significance of the organization is still difficult to confirm. Few records were kept. George Bickley quite possibly embezzled funds, but his accounting was non-existent anyhow, and the Knights enthusiastically joined the Confederate cause and spent the next four years spilling their own blood. By the end of the war years, the organization had functionally ceased to exist. Bickley, for his part, never fired a shot in anger. He formally joined the Confederate Army as a volunteer surgeon, but probably found that very unpleasant, and he actually had no medical talent whatsoever. In the summer of 1863, he entered Union lines under false pretenses, but authorities were suspicious, and they quickly identified him. He was arrested in Indiana shortly thereafter. There is an open question about what exactly he was doing there. While again, actual documentation is hard to really verify at this remove, it's likely that Bickley was trying to revitalize the Knights in the Lower North under a new label, the Order of American Knights. Certainly the government believed that this was so, and they did have evidence from agents who infiltrated. Once again, definite facts elude us. Some of these circles existed, but their actual reach and power remains unknown. The organization may have really been unrelated to the Knights and merely claimed an old label, again for propaganda purposes. Oh, we can't even really determine if George Bickley was involved at this point. We will, however, discuss this when it comes time to look at Copperhead activity much later in the show. George Bickley himself never received a trial, but this was actually quite normal, even in the absence of a suspension of habeas corpus. 
because he was a Confederate army officer who had concealed his identity and entered a war zone, he was subject to arrest as a spy. But when the war ended, authorities just let him go. He died in 1867, and quite frankly, nobody much seems to have cared. The nation had by that time moved far past George Bickley. The Knights did not reassemble after the war either, at least not directly. But other secret societies did, often organized in a very similar manner. The Ku Klux Klan is the most notable of these today, although more for their activities under a different and revived movement in the early 20th century. Following Reconstruction, several similar organizations existed, keeping their membership secret, mostly because of the various criminal activities they engaged in. And yet, there was one knight who most definitely left his mark on history. John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. Unlike his Union-loyal brother, Edwin, John Wilkes Booth always seemed swept aside by the appearance of romance and adventure in Southern society. He eagerly hobnobbed with elite Southerners, and he joined the Knights of the Golden Circle. While never particularly caring to risk his life fighting for the Confederacy, he found the idea of the 13th Amendment, ending slavery forever throughout the United States, so odious that he gunned down Abraham Lincoln. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.